yeah, I think Merrily We Roll Along is almost liturgical or almost sacramental in its way of thinking about time. This is the Gospel of Musical Theater, a priestly look at some of your favorite musicals with your hosts, Cathedral Deans and Musical Theater Queens, Nathan LaRude and Peter Elliott. This is the Gospel of Musical Theater. It's springtime in Vancouver. I'm Peter and Nathan is where today, and we're recording this in April, it's been snowing in Portland. Oh my God. A little bit of unseasonable spring weather in Portland, but that's all right. We're, uh, we're, we're moving forward. Spring is here despite the snow. And our Sondheim uh, reflections continue. Uh, gosh, it's been fascinating to take uh, deep dives into each one of these works of Stephen Sondheim. So each of them so distinctive uh, with such great songs, uh, powerful stories. Some of them uh, were, of course, successes. Things like uh, Into the Woods and Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, commercial successes. Mm-hmm. Some were qualified failures and then today we talk about what is arguably the most troubled production of uh Sondheim's career uh the 1981 show Merrily We Go Go Along. Yeah kind of an end of an era show I'm, I'm thinking about you know we haven't talked a lot about the two volume collected lyrics of Stephen Sondheim right his two volume uh, Finishing the Hat I think is volume one and Look I Made a Hat is the second volume and I the image I have in my mind there's a graphic that's been making the rounds on the internet of Charlton Heston as Moses coming down from Mount Sinai, carrying in one hand, look, I've made a hat. And in the other hand, finishing the hat, right? The two, the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, the two volumes of Sondheim, <laughs> as, as if these are the, the, the Ten Commandments, which I think is a telling, a telling way of thinking about how this guy functions. Uh, but Merrily We Roll Along, I think significantly ends the first volume of yes. this collective. This is so, and this is, you know, this is the end of the Sondheim Hal Prince partnerships um kind of famously they they don't they don't ever work together again although they they do salvage their friendship eventually um but i think merrily we roll along is kind of a little bit of an end of an era uh for sondheim uh this is the show i mean it flops so so, flops so badly that he's can and he's taken to kind of taken to the woodshed so badly by the critics that at the end of the show he sort of indicates i will never write another musical i think i'm going to go into video games now um, yeah. And then, of course, you know, James Lapine comes along and we'll, we'll talk about that in our, in our in subsequent episodes. But this is kind of, we might say, the end of the end of youthful Sondheim and the beginnings of something a little bit different. And I think the signs of where he's going to go with Sunday in the Park with George into the woods, passion, some of the later material. I think you can see the the signs of that in Merrily We Roll Along. But in some, I mean, what an interesting show to think about looking back, looking forward because this is a show told very explicitly from the rearview mirror. Yeah. And it came right after Sweeney Todd, which was a qualified success and has gone on to enjoy great success uh, in revivals and opera houses and musical theater companies and so forth. Merrily, a number of attempts to, to get it right, continuing attempts to get it right to this very day in 2022 when we're speaking. He attempted to say, but just uh, just a troubled show it was Frank Rich, who wrote in the New York Times, his review of the 1981 production of Merrily. Um, he wrote, as we all should probably have learned by now to be a Stephen Sondheim fan is to have one's heart broken at regular intervals. Sometimes the pain is compounded by another factor for Some of Mr. Sondheim's most powerful work shows up in shows that fail, like Merrily. And Merrily, Frank Rich continued, has a half dozen songs that are, I love this, crushing and beautiful that soar and linger and hurt. And yeah, it's got those hurting Mm. songs. It's got the characteristic uh, Sondheim, achy, beautiful melodies, perceptive lyrics. It was a big, it was an ambitious show, a big cast, 26 actors in the original cast, most of them adolescents. Right. Um, Teens and early twenties. Yeah. uh, And uh, as Nathan will describe this, uh, for those who don't know the show, it's a show that tells a story backwards and rather than have older characters then transform to be younger, they chose to have younger actors 
who they would make up to look older and then they could uh, come back to sort of their natural look. Um, there's a great documentary on, is it HBO or PBS, talking about the whole audition process. Well, not, uh, not just the audition, but kind of about that company, right? These, yes. this, I mean, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. There's a meta level now to Merrily We Roll Along, which is that the original company who are all teenagers in 1981 are now, you know, what, what is that 30, 30 years later, uh, looking back on their youth experience, was, which was the show, I, I, the, the documentary is called The Best Worst Thing That Ever Could Have Happened. That's I think. right. Yeah, That's it's a right. great documentary. But great in some ways, telling a similar story, right? What, what, what did we have when we were 18, 19, 20, 21? What happened to us? And where have we ended up? And how do you, how do you draw the line between what I thought the world was about when I was 20 and now what I think the world is about when I'm 50. That's the story that Merrily We Roll Along is telling. And now there's that whole additional layer of the original company is ready to tell the more complicated story. They are now the ages of the older characters that they're playing, that they, you know, when they played those characters, they were 18. So there's that really interesting uh, level. Sondheim is also doing a little bit of a meta level, right? He's, he's in, in some ways, uh, you, I would argue, Merrily Roll, We Roll Along probably comes, comes the closest at a literal level of being an autobiographical show for him and Hal yeah. Prince. Um, they, they are the young, the young guys in 1955. That's the, the beginning or end of the show, depending on how you think about it. Um, so they're, they're about the age of the middle-aged characters when we meet them in 1981. So layers of generational meta stuff happening in Merrily We Roll Along. Yeah. And it's really a show about making a show in a lot of ways yep. and included in the original cast, Jason Alexander, who became quite famous as George on Seinfeld, George Costanza yep. on Seinfeld, yeah. uh, young with hair. Uh, Although still, guy. Sondheim says he was really the only one of the young actors who was convincing as a, and he says, J Jason Alexander was basically born middle-aged. He worked as a, as a 20 year old playing a, a 30, a 40 year old, 50 year old. Uh, he says, Jason Alexander sold it. The others of them who were 18, 19, 20, they were not convincing as 50 year olds, but Jason was, Jason knew what he was doing. So can, uh, Nathan, can you recap how this whole thing uh, works together? It's a yeah. story told backwards. Story told backwards. We, we, when the curtain rises, uh, on essentially a graduation. And Franklin Shepard has come back to his, I think it's his high school, uh, to give a commencement address. He's now, I think he's what, 49, 50, something like that. In the original company, uh, this has been changed in some subsequent subsequent uh, re retoolings of it. But in the original company, he comes to deliver a very bitter, very caustic. Uh, what you what you kids need to hear is the word practical, and they start kind of tearing him apart under their breaths, right? Like this is dumb. Um, so already at the outset, right, we're getting uh, a guy who has he was kind of at the pinnacle of his profession. He's a a, a, a composer who's become a, a movie maker. He's you know achieved a great a, a bunch of success. Um, so the, the question kind of that they put, how did you get there? How did you get here? How did you get there from here, Mr. Shepard? Kind of trace your life for us. So that becomes the conceit of the show. And in some ways, this is kind of looking back. So the show goes in opposite sequential order, you know, kind of going back in time step by step. So we roll back the clock a little bit moment by moment to kind of trace the career of Franklin Shepard and also then the careers and the lives of his two closest friends, Charlie Kringus, uh, playwright and Mary Flynn, I think is her name, uh, um, yeah. a writer and columnist. So the, the and, and by the end of the show, then the kind of the final, the final number, we see them basically at the beginning, right? We see them on the rooftop. It's 1955. They're watching Sputnik. Um, something is stirring, breaking ground. We see them wide-eyed. They're 18, 19, 20, just beginning with all these dreams. So the show right. uh, is, you know, is what is it about the the death of a dream? How we lose our way? I mean, this is such a quintessentially Sondheim, right? In some ways, this is this is very much follies. This is very much a little night music. He's dealt with this theme before. Uh, how do we how do we start out life? What do we lose along the way? What compromises do we make along the way? Do we lose our original dream, or does it get transformed into something? You know, what, what, what does maturity do to you? Does it deepen you? Do you grow or do you lose something along the way? I think that's kind of some of the thematic material he's looking at. I think it's significant. You know, we, we've talked on this, on this podcast about Rodgers and Hammerstein's great failure, the show Allegro from 19, 
I think 47, 48, something like that. Something Son- like that. Yeah. Sondheim was a, um, a gopher on that show. So he's 13 years old. He's, a, he's apprenticed himself to Oscar Hammerstein II. And he um, gets a deep dive, actually, into the, the makings of this very ambitious and very uh, notorious flop, Allegro, which is also telling uh, a story about uh, a man with dreams who is taken off his course, right? Allegra also tells the story of a midlife crisis, we might say. We trace a, the story of a man's life from birth to about 40. Uh, he's a doctor. In Allegro, he's a doctor. He's a small town doctor who has a deep love for his profession, marries an ambitious shrew of a woman. I want to asterisk this because I want to think about the role uh, the role that women play in these stories as, I mean, this yes. is in some way, one very kind of basic way we could tell these stories is these are kind of bros before hoes story. Women, <laughs> women take you off your mark, but the, the way through is to double down on your friendships, men, male creators, don't lose your dream. Don't get, don't let a woman with ambitions take you off your mark. So Allegro tells the story of a small town doctor who moves to the big city and then realizes in the kind of the final moment, oh my gosh, I've lost my way. I need to go back home. His mother comes out, calls him home. He returns to mama's arms. Uh, Allegro flopped. And Sondheim, I think it was, I think it was Hal Prince who once said to Stephen Sondheim, you know, Steve, you spent your whole career trying to fix the second act of Allegro. And yeah. Sondheim himself says, you know, you know, nowhere more so than in Merrily We Roll Along. This is actually right. in, in, a, in some ways in a very deliberate way, my attempt to redo Allegro, to, to, um, to fix the mistakes of Oscar Hammerstein, my great mentor, and to tell the story then of a, uh, of a kind of a youth to, a youth to maturity story of one, one guy and his, and his friends. So Franklin Shepard, right, is the playwright. Uh, he, he gets married very young. Uh, he, he has this kind of beautiful collaborative uh, relationship with his songwriter partner and his, his wife. Uh, that relationship does not last. He cheats on her. He gets kind of seduced by this uh, charismatic actress who convinces Franklin to write a, a big hit for her. He has a big hit. His marriage ends. He and Gussie have an affair. Gussie eventually at the end of the show leaves him Has you know, he's, he's cheating. His marriage has fallen apart. He's reached the pinnacle of his success in Hollywood and he realizes his life is empty. He returns at the beginning of the show to his high school graduation, basically to warn these kids, right? Like, don't trust your dreams. You need to, you need to think about what's practical, um, so that's that's really the big question, I think. Kind of a cautionary of tale. Yeah, in some, in some ways, ways yeah. it is. Yeah, although is it? So what what's the caution? Is the is the yeah. caution the forty nine year old Stephen Sondheim turning to a younger generation and saying, "You guys have no idea. You're naive. You're clueless. You're bright eyed, bushy tailed, and the world is going to eat you up." At one level, that's the cautionary tale. And at another level, I think the cautionary tale is to the 49-year-old creators, you all lost something along the way. Right. How can you get it back? Yeah. How, can, yeah. how can you find uh, your first love, we might say? How do, you, how, do you, how do you find the place that, how do you find vocation? I mean, if you, that, that's one yeah, yeah. way we might kind of bridge to a slightly more religious key here. In some ways, Merrily We Roll Along is a song, is a show about vocation. Uh, you yeah. are called to do a certain kind of work in the world. What happens when you lose your vocation? That, yeah. that might be the central question. And it begins, we've had a fascination throughout these conversations, Nathan, with when hymns show up in musical theater. And uh, at least in the 1981 version of Barely We Roll Along, at the school assembly where Franklin has come back, they sing the school song, which is a hymn. Yeah, um, The Hills, the of, hills tomorrow. of Tomorrow. And it's got, you know, it's four part acapella mm-hmm. and anth- anthem like he doesn't do it often. Stephen Sondheim uh, writing a hymn. Uh, but when he does, gosh, he writes a great hymn.
It's a beautiful hymn. Yeah, I, th I think the conceit of it is that that's the song that young Franklin Shepard wrote for his high school graduation. So here they are all these years later doing it. So it's like, here's a here's a little bit of a soundbite of what this guy was capable of early on in his career. It's a, it's, I mean, it's, it's an interesting hymn because it is actually a little bit complicated musically uh, and, and lyrically. It's not... Uh, it's not quite pomp and circumstance. It's not quite a sort of 20s school song. It's a little more, uh, the, the the metrics are a little funny. It goes in some, some kind of interesting ways. So already we're, we're getting a sense of um, this guy is an innovative composer. He's, yes. he's not, he's not Absolutely. just doing popular music. He's interested. And I think this is, this is an autobiographical layer for Sondheim, right? This guy is interested in playing with form and function and doing something with music that hasn't been heard before. I think we'll get those themes coming to their full flowering in Sunday in the Park with George, right? Where that, yes. that question of art that is commercial and safe versus something new is really central to the plot of Sunday in the Park with George. But already Sondheim's playing with that. And it's hard for me not to read that as an autobiographical wrestling, right? I could choose to double down on Send in the Clowns, which is a very traditional song, AABA, 32 bars. Everybody knows how to listen to that song. It's wildly successful and makes me a ton of money. Or I can continue to innovate with songs that break the form, break the rules, do this kind of complicated thing, uh, you know, and famous, this, this moment is in Merrily We Roll Along, right, where a producer listens to a song that this young composer brings to him and says, there's no hummable tunes, and then hums some enchanted evening, right? How come you right. can't just do something hummable, like da-da-da-da-da-da? And Sondheim says, like, that's literally an autobiographical moment. That actually happened to me. It was George Abbott who said, how come you can't write a hummable show tune like Oscar Hammerstein, Steve? How come everything sounds like Stravinsky? Stravinsky won't work. Sondheim says, I got my revenge. Um, so in some ways, Merrily We Roll Along is his revenge. It's revenge on the people who told him, your stuff is unhummable, it's too complicated, it's weird, nobody wants to hear it, it will never make you any money. I do. They're always popping their cork, I hate that line. The cops, the cabbies, the sales girls up its axe. You gotta have a real taste for maniacs, suddenly I do. That's great, that's swell, the other stuff is well. It isn't every day I hear a score this strong But fellas, if I may, there's only one thing wrong There's not a tune you can hum There's not a tune you go bum 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 da dum You need a tune to go bum 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 da dum Give me a melody Why can't you throw them a crumb? What's wrong with letting them tap their toes a bit? I'll let you know when Stravinsky has a hit Give me some melodies Ah, sure, I know It's not that kind of show but can't you have a score that's sort of in between? But play a little more, I'll show you what I mean. Once to live in New York, I always hated the dirt, the heat, the noise. But ever since I met you, I... Listen, boys, maybe it's me. But that's just not a hum of a mum of a mum of a melody. Write more work hard, leave your name with a girl. Less avant-garde, leave your name with a girl. Just write a plain old melody. The whole play is based on a Moss Hart stage play, George S. Kaufman and Mar Moss Hart, mm -hmm. um, from 1934. So the George Firth, who had worked with Prince and Sondheim on Company, takes this old show, rehabilitates it into the 1980s, looking back to the 1950s. 50s. And Sondheim's long had a fascination with, with time and with how you understand how how you're shaped by the events of time, how the friends that you make and the lovers that you lose um, move from the kind of moments of great promise to disaster, estrangement, mm -hmm. etc. Things fall um, apart. Yeah, they fall apart. And so, like the song "Old Friends." Um, which comes up pretty early in the show. Yeah, well, uh, it's it's reverse reprise does. And then right. we hear it a little more. I mean, so Sondheim is doing this interesting thing very deliberately with the phenomenon of the reprise, right? In the traditional right. Broadway musical, you know, a song, uh, a first version of a song comes in the first act and it's usually the, the, the simpler version of a lyric 
uh, often in a major key. And he's, he's playing with what, what Rodgers and Hammerstein do, actually, with reprises, where then something will get reprised in the second act. It's a version of the song you heard in the first act, but often in a darker key, or there's a lyric change, or something like that. So there's that extra layer of resonance. In some ways, like, reprise is just a meta lyric, right? It's yeah. it's an echo of something we heard before, but with a different layer now added to it that compl- that makes it a little more complex, a little more interesting, a little more nuanced. So what he's doing is taking that phenomenon and reversing it. What you hear first is, quote unquote, the reprise. It's the more complicated version, the maturer version, we might say, because the show is being told in reverse chronological order. It's the more uh, the more nuanced version. And then what you hear, the the reprise, I suppose, is or the original version. It happens later in the show. You hear the, uh, the quote unquote original version of that song. Yes. So the the irony here is that it's it's complexity in reverse, right? First we right. get the bitter old the uh kind of angry version of a song. Uh, this is true with old friends, this is true with not a day goes by. So yes. then when we hear it later on in the show, it's it's recapturing the innocence, but what I think the audience experience of that innocent moment is like, oh, there's actually nothing pure about this. Right. We we've, we've already seen where this story goes. So we know how it ends. So there's, as you say, there's a bittersweet quality then to uh, the the reprise or the original version because we've heard the second act version of it already. We know how yeah. dark this thing is going to get, and that's fascinating. So old friends, I think, is a great a great way to kind of think about that. Hey, old friend, what do you say? Old friend, make it okay. Old friend, give the old friendship a break. Why so grim? We're going on forever. You, me, him, too many lives are at stake. Friends, this long has to mean something strong. So if our old friends wrong, shouldn't an old friend come through? It's us, old friend, what to discuss, old friend, here's to us, who's like us, damn few. I wonder, it makes me wonder why audiences didn't receive this show very well. I mean... 45 previews, apparently, 42 maybe, reworking the show as as they went along, trying different things, very young and experienced cast, big money spent on it. But I wonder, just when you're talking about the kind of reverse reprise uh, trope here, whether that, because audiences are so conditioned to watching a show from beginning to end and being carried along in a narrative arc that begins somewhere and then somewhere and leaves you with a question about, you know, what's tomorrow going to be yeah. for these characters? I mean, that's always my question when I leave the theater. Uh, you know, did Emil Beck and Nellie Forbush, for example, get married after all? Um, you don't know, but you kind of wonder. Yeah. Um, and, what, and what happened when Nellie brought him home to Little Rock? <laughs> <laughs> that's a question I have. <laughs> right. But with with Merrily, it's it's kind of depressing i guess that yeah you, you don't end up with any kind of hope or question no. you end up instead with a maybe nagging affirmation that life is life can just be shitty yep. and the ideals and the aspirations of youth may be misplaced yeah. um and there may be no escaping there may be no kind of I guess I'm kind of leaning into into the woods now. There, no, there but is think, no happily ever after. Right. No. And and some I, I think this is the this is the theological question at the heart of Merrily We Roll Along, and maybe to the heart of the work of Stevens Hondheim, right? I mean, I think this is not just Merrily, but I want to think about so there's this great song. It's a I think it's the act one. Is this true? Is it the act one closer? Now you know. Now Franklin, you know it's the act one closer. Yeah, it's the act one closer. So it's the it's the big moment at the end of the first act where Franklin is outside of the divorce court. His wife has just divorced him. He's lost custody of his kid. His life has basically fallen apart and his friends are attempting to help him put, put his life back together, right? Um, best, best thing that ever could have happened. That's where the title of the documentary comes from, right? Frank, you think that your life has just fallen apart. This is the best thing that ever could have happened. And his friend, Mary, who I think is the most interesting character in the whole thing. Mary Flynn gets my vote for like 
the I I love Mary. She's you know uh, she becomes an alcoholic. Her she becomes very bitter. Um, become we we first meet her at the end of her life when she is bitter, alcoholic, very funny, very caustic. But in this middle thing, she gets what I think is the most interesting part of that song. She says, "Look now, you know, right?" And she says, "It's called flowers wilt. It's called apples rot. It's called thieves get rich and saints get shot." And then she says, this is, I think, is if there's a theological thesis here, it's this. It's called God Don't Answer Prayers a Lot. Okay, now you know. All right, now you know. Life is crummy. Well, now you know. Okay, big surprise. People love you and tell you lies. Bricks can fall out of clear blue skies. Put your dimple down. Now you know. Okay, there you go. Learn to live with it. Now you know. It's called flowers wilt. It's called apples rot. It's called thieves get rich and saints get shot. It's called God don't answer prayers a lot. Okay, now you know. Okay, now you know. Now forget it. Don't fall apart at the seams. It's called letting go your illusions and don't confuse with dreams. Yes, that's quite a blow. Don't regret it and don't just go to extremes. It's called what your choice. It's called count to ten. It's called burn your bridges. Start again. You should burn them every now. So right. at one level, the, the first thing is like, uh, it's loss of innocence, right? Everything. And so if we're, if I'm going to add a theological layer to this, it's right. Like there's no puppeteer God up in the sky. And if you pray the right prayers or behave like a good little boy or read your Bible or go to Sunday school, you will be safe. There's no safety in this world. At one level, it's, um, it's atheism or at yes. least agnosticism, right? There's no yeah. God. Nobody's up there answering prayers. You got to figure this out on your own. And I think, you know, in, in, uh, articles, conversations, people who look at Sondheim from a religious lens, that is often the line that they'll, right? Like basically this guy's a functional atheist. God don't answer prayers a lot. Um, so a kind of agnosticism sliding into atheism. There's no or, divine figure here. Or even nihilism in some yeah, ways. Yeah, a kind of nihilism. That's right. Although then he pivots, right? And that's kind of what Mary's doing, right? Like, okay, so so that's true. That's honesty. We can start there. And and where she goes is, you know, uh, you got to burn your bridges now and then or, or you'll never grow. Now, you know, so now you can go somewhere. Um, and right. I think, you know, there it's like, you know, you, you may have to pivot a little bit, but don't give up on your dreams. And more importantly, and this is, I think, if the show has a, uh, if there's hope in Merrily We Roll Along, if there's an answer to that question of the nihilistic question, there is no meaning in the universe. It's well, look at us. That's what his friends say, right? You got us. Um, right. In some ways, the, the, the answer is your friends. If, yes. if, there's any, if there's any saving grace in Merrily Roll Along, it's not romance, it's not marriage, it's friendship. And I think that's actually, so if, if I'm going to find the gospel in Merrily We Roll Along, that's where I'm going to start. Actually, that's pretty consistent with Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, that's yeah. pretty consistent with Paul, right? Uh, romantic relationships, and a lot of this is, you know, first century male and female norms, right? But there's a deep suspicion uh, at one level, we might say in the New Testament, there's a deep suspicion of women. That's that's yes. cultural. Some of that finds its way into Merrily We Roll Along. We can talk about the role that Gussie plays later on. Um, but but the answer of the New Testament in some ways is, uh, you know, the, all the kind of different ways that love shows up and the kind of, you know, agape love in some ways shows up in, you know, it's Jesus at a dinner party with his 12 best friends. Now, right. as queer as queer men, you and I maybe, you know, like we have a different take on that. Have a different slightly. take on that. Slightly <laughs> different. Yeah, we have, I have questions about the name, but at one level, right, it is, it is literally bros before hoes. Um, yeah. It's, there's something creatively powerful and maybe even sanctifying about friendship that is different in an erotic context. Yeah, for sure. And that's interesting to me, right? I mean, that's what Jesus says in, in the gospel of John, you know, I do not call you servants any longer. A servant I does not know what friends. is, I have called you friends. Yeah. And that, yeah. that idea of friendship as being um, in some ways, maybe God's most uh, salvific vessel for, for uh, bringing the divine into our lives. I mean, and, and, and not to make it too personally, but like that, that rings true in my life. I don't know if it does yeah. for you, my friends have been some of the most power, you know, when my, when my marriage fell apart, um, it was my friends who picked me up, who showed yep. me a different way of kind of moving through. So I actually do think there's something pretty close to the gospel at the heart of this show, which is 
your friends are going to be there for you or make sure you have friends who will be there for you when your life falls apart because God don't answer prayers a lot, but, yeah. but we are vessels of grace for one another. And when yeah. the erotic and the romantic falls apart, there is the philia, there is the relationship of friends. Um, that's where the Eucharist is grounded in the new Testament. And I think that's where the Eucharist is grounded in merrily. We roll along. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what it would have been. I wonder if the success would have been somewhat different if the last song of the show had been now, you know, um, mm-hmm. rather than the sec, the, the, the first act closer, yeah. uh, some sense of, you know, now you failed, you rely on your friends. You know, if Jesus were doing merrily, we lo- go along, he'd end with, you know, you who have ears to hear, hear, right. uh, listen, um, et cetera. Uh, but instead you kind of end up back at the time of naivete and I think you're left with a kind of, so is it worth it? So that's one thought. The other yeah. thought, just on the theology of friendship, I'm remembering mm-hmm. back to my seminary days in the late 70s, where the big issues were really around ordination of women, still uh-huh. very, very present. And, you know, there were endless studies that happened. Uh, what does it mean to be a what does it mean to be a human? What does it mean to be a priest? What does it mean to be male? What does it mean to be female, et cetera? Just kind of a reductio ad absurdum, trying to get somewhere down deep. And then folks are wanting to develop a theology of sexuality. And I remember one of my favorite professors, John Snow, uh, said, what about a theology of friendship? Yeah. Like the New Testament, just to your point, Nathan, is a lot more about friendship than it is about pair bonding. Yep. It's a lot more about what constitutes friendships. And certainly that's uh, a kind of moral center of merrily yep. is, is the importance of friends. And just, I know we want to resist always going autobiographical with Stephen Sondheim, but for what we know about his life, he was able to form and maintain yeah. robust friendships yep. with women and with men mm-hmm. uh, throughout his 90 some years uh, yep. of life on the earth. And yeah, yeah um, my experience too, of the breakups I've had in my life and the transitions, certainly when I moved from Toronto to Vancouver in 1994, the first really priority was to establish a circle of friends yep. before seeking to pair bond. That's right. It wasn't that clear to me at the time, but uh, now, when I look back, uh, and you know, for those of us in 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 ministry, ordained ministry, you're kind of given uh, a community where you can find friends, and you have a little bit of cachet if you're a priest in that community. But even if not, it's a great it's a great ground to to build friendships. And yeah, it's the friends who have stayed uh, stayed loyal. Right. And, you know, I think both you and I are, we hope that we are good friends to others as well. Uh-huh. It's not mm-hmm. just receiving, receiving good friends. So yeah, let's, yeah. so let's, let's look, because there's a couple, you, you named one of them. I think that I, I want to talk about that last number in the show, right? Something is stirring, but before we go there, let's, let's pick up on this point that you're just making because old friends is in some way that's Sondheim's most robust theology of friendship. I would argue, yes. right? So, hey, old friends, are you okay, old friends? This is Frank talking to Charlie, right? What do you say, old friend? Are we or are we unique? So some of it's like, hey, we're the, we're the cool kids, right? Like we have this kind of uh, relationship. Most friends fade or they don't make the grade. New ones are quickly made. And in a pinch, sure, they'll do. But us, old friends, what's to discuss, old friends? Here's to us. Who's like us? Damn few. Here's to us. Who's like us? Damn few. Hey, old friend, are you okay? Old friend, what do you say? Old friend, are we or are we? Time goes by, everything else keeps changing You and I, we get continued next week Most friends fade or they don't make the grade New ones are quickly made and 
in a pinch, sure they'll do. But us, old friend, what's to discuss? Old friend, here's to us, who's like us, damn few. Now, in the in the context of the show, they then get into a fight right away, right? And they're 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 and they're talking about uh, holding it, holding one another in some ways to the standard of their earlier friendship, right? There's this there's really interesting argument, right? Right or wrong, uh, Mary says old friends shouldn't care if you're wrong. Frank says, well, should, but not for too long. Charlie says, what's too long? If you're wrong, they're fighting about this. Mary says, old friends do leave their brands on you, but old friends shouldn't compete. Frank says, old friends don't make demands on you. To which Charlie says, well, should make demands on you. Yeah. Frank says, well, don't make demands you can meet. Charlie says, well, what's the point of demands you can meet? So they're having this really interesting, I mean, this is really Frank yeah, and Charlie yeah, yeah. with Mary as mediator. Uh, but Frank and Charlie is the friendship at the heart of this thing, right? Charlie, I think, representing a kind of pure, a pureness, right? Yes. Um, he sees something in, he, he says later on, and uh, maybe we'll talk about Charlie's breakdown moment uh, on on uh, on a camera. He's being interviewed for a show. And, and he says, you know, a lot of people do the money thing very well. Frank does the song thing very, nobody does it better. So in some ways, it's like he sees something in Frank that nobody else can do, which is that Frank has a has a gift of songwriting and nobody else does it better. So Charlie becomes kind of the, the, the honesty, the holding, I mean, Charlie becomes the holder of Frank's vocation in a certain yeah. kind of way, right? They're, yeah. they're, a, they're a songwriting team, they're a partnership. But when Frank, you know, gets seduced by Hollywood, Charlie's left kind of holding the bag there. So clinging to something that used to be, I mean, at one level, Charlie's living in a fantasy world, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, Frank's you know, longing to kind of break through and, and do something different. Charlie's the thing holding him back. Charlie also represents, I think, kind of the lodestar for Frank, right? Like, yeah. I know you, dude. I've seen, you know, we had that moment when we were kids before anybody knew who we were. There was a purity there. There was something real there. Don't lose that thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then Mary, right? The kind of, so in some ways, like the, one of the other queer things I love about the way that Merrily We Roll Along talks about friendship is it's a three-way friendship, right? It's two yes. guys, two straight guys, ostensibly, Charlie and Frank, and then Mary, who is in love with Frank, um, has a has a, a, a sibling-like relationship with Charlie. Charlie always reads as queer to me, although in mm. the in the context of the show, he talks about his wife and his kids. So he's, he's but we never meet him as far as I know, right? Like his family's always offstage. Um, so Charlie is the, you know, the kind of interesting, I don't know, crux point, but Mary then is the one who sings to Charlie early on in the show, but late in the plot, Charlie, why can't it be like it was? Yeah. I want it the way that, and this is actually, this is the reprise of Old Friends, right? She picks up on some of the lines that we will hear later in Old Friends. Um, but, and, and that's kind of what she says, you know, we were, we were nicer then. You, trees were nice. She kind of names all these things about the world that she remembers as a young, like everything was nicer. That we yeah. were nicer to one another. There was a sweetness that we had. What happened to that thing? Why are we fighting all the time? Charlie, why can't it be like it was? I liked it the way that it was. Charlie, you and me, we were nicer then. We were nice. Kids and cities and trees were nice. Everything. I don't know who we are anymore And I'm starting not to care Look at us, Charlie Nothing's the way that it was I want it the way that it was Help me stop remembering then Don't you remember? It was good, it was really good Charlie, make it like it was. We had a good thing going. We had a good thing going. Going, gone. going, going gone. Yeah. 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 And, and that, 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 that song becomes in some ways the, the musical encapsulation of that relationship. Yeah. Um, yeah. It started out like a song, slow with no surprise. Uh, and then we woke one morning to realize we had a good thing going and we could not maintain it. Right. We lost, we lost that thing. And that, that, that's the song, isn't it? That the party hears for the first time in a sort of great moment yeah. and they love it. The love, they love the song so much. They want to hear it again. Mm -hmm. And they and talk over it. Sort of they talk over it. And then it of course, isn't just a song. 
it's the experience. It's the kind of depth experience of, of friendships gone, of, yeah. of, of hope stashed, of things that were good going and then gone. Yeah. Let's, let's look at that. I, I, one of my questions with Merrily We Roll Along is what is its 11 o'clock number, right? There's yeah. three, there's three kind of joggernauts that come at the end of the show. They're all the you know, songs of innocence, we might say. There's, there's, there are three songs that we have had set up for us throughout the night, right? We've heard little echoes of them, but we finally get them in there. We might say their purest form or their original form, kind of yeah. bang, bang, bang. One of them is, as you said, it's the, the moment when these young songwriters are auditioning their their little their little you know cabaret review for all these fancy people in New York they're going to get swept up and eaten up you know already the woman who's invited them is the woman that Frank's going to have an affair with who's going to take him off as Mark she's she's Gussie she's the cautionary tale here but they sing what I think is the purest and sweetest song in the whole show which is good thing going right and is this a song they actually play with as well yes. in terms of how to, how the song gets constructed and so yep. forth? Yeah. Yep. But we, we finally hear it at the end of the day. We've been, we've been hearing the musical echoes of it throughout the night. So there is something as an audience member, like there's something so powerful about, oh, finally, we've been we hearing, get hear it. we yeah. get to hear it in its purest, where we hear that the, the little melody, da, 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 which they've been playing with throughout the whole thing. We hear it and uh, just, and it's just Frank at the piano, right? It started yeah. out like a song. It started quiet and slow with no surprise and then one morning I woke to realize we had a good thing going and then second second verse right it's not that nothing went wrong some angry moments of course but just a few and only moments no more because we knew we had this good thing going and then it turns here's the you know here's the kind of the yeah, bridge yeah. right and if I wanted too much was that such a mistake at the time you never wanted enough all right tough I don't make that a crime and then back to the kind of back to the chorus, right? Or back to the kind of the, the, A, the A format. Why, yeah. And while it's going along, you take for granted some love will wear away. Then he says, we took for granted a lot. But still I say, it could have kept on growing instead of just kept on. We had a good thing going. 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 Gone. gone. Yeah. The most exciting composer ever is going to play a song we hope will be in our new show. And when he finishes, you're all going to want to swallow poison because there'll be nothing more to live for. <laughs> Frank, what is she talking about? Later, Charlie. It started out like a song. Started quiet and slow with no surprise. And then one morning I woke to realize we had a good thing going. It's not that nothing went wrong. Some angry moments, of course, but just a few. And only moments no more because we knew we had this good thing going and if I wanted too much was that such a mistake at the time you never wanted enough all right tough I don't make that a crime and while it's going along you take for granted some love will wear away we took for granted a lot and still I say, it could have kept on growing Instead of just kept on We had a good thing going Going Isn't, I mean, there, yeah. I, there's something, I mean, at one level, there's something so bittersweet about that lyric, right? Yeah. I mean, it is a song of regret already, although 
it's the innocent song of regret, right? It's two guys at the start of their career. Ironically, I mean, you know, we're, we're going to see this with Sunny in the Park with George, you know, where like uh, 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 James Lapine and Stephen Sondheim are in some ways like sending a message to their future selves in the show that they will write. I think that's a little bit what's happening here. These two young songwriters are at the height, at the beginning of their career are writing the story of their relationship before they've done it, right? Yeah. Like it, it's this interesting kind of prophetic moment where at the outset, they, they, they're onto something that will be true about them, which is that ultimately that friendship will not survive. I mean, I think that's kind of how the, how the story ends because at the beginning of the show, it's just Frank and Charlie's left him. Um, they had a good thing going and they could not. And, it's, and I, the message of the song is like, it never, it never got to grow. It just kept yeah. going. So there's an interesting thing there about like, if friendships don't grow, if you don't burn your bridges every now and then you never grow. And yeah. that thing that had promise early on gets stultified by trying to hold on to something that has to change if it's going to keep living. Um, I don't know. There's an yeah. interesting there, something, something about friendship, something about romantic relations. I mean, something about human relationships, right? If there's not room for them to change and grow, they get stuck and they become ossified and they cannot continue. I know. Yeah. And the, uh, another, just to pause for a moment and step back, Sondheim's capacity as a poet, as a lyricist, and what I love about it, and if you'd read the second verse again, I just don't have it in mm -hmm. front of me and you do, he's able to take the vernacular, a spoken word, and turn it into a lyric that just flows and you can sing it. It sounds conversational, but it's poetry. I don't, I don't know what I'm trying yeah. to express here. I just, I just in awe of his brilliance of taking common spoken language and making it poetry. Yeah, isn't it? I mean, so this is in some ways, it's I think the only, I don't know about the only, it is the, it is the purest AABA 32 bar. It's the simplest thing in the whole show, right? Yeah. It's these, I mean, it's short little lines. If I wanted too much, was that such a mistake at the time? You know, I mean, it's, it, as you say, very conversational. There's very nothing, conversational. there's nothing clever about this lyric. It is not showing off. There's no name dropping. There's actually not really, there's a, there's a, some internal rhyming that's very, um, in some ways, this is a sonnet. This is harder to do yeah. than the really witty, fast, spitty lyrics that Sondheim is so good at that he glories in his cleverness. I think it's harder. I think he would probably say too, it's actually harder to do sincerity. It's harder to do something simple because there's nothing to, it's so vulnerable, right? It's just, um, it's just very simple words. There's, I don't think there's any words in here that are, are longer than two syllables. Um, yeah. It's a very, very simple lyric, but wow, when it hits you. So I want to make a case that good thing going is the show's 11 o'clock number. I think this is the um, this is the the heart of the show in some ways. Yeah. That, and, and it's and it's a weird 11 o'clock number because it's the beginning of the story, right? But by the time we get it as an audience member, it's really, it's the end of our experience of these characters. We see them in some ways at their purest. And then as you say, right, immediately they play it again and the the conflict, you know, like the, the, the crowd in, intervenes, they're talking over the song. Yeah. They get swallowed up by the, you know, the Hollywood, uh, in this case, the Broadway commercial enterprise thing. They, they lose their friendship as a result. Another yeah. candidate for the 11 o'clock number is obviously Not a Day Goes By, yeah. which uh, kind of transcends the show in a lot of ways. It's become one of Bernadette Peters' uh, signature tunes when Ed Bacon was talking to us about Into the Woods. Uh, I guess that's uh, an episode in the future, but he was um, talking about the first time he saw Bernadette Peters she was uh, singing a song and tears were forming in her eyes. Yeah. And I don't know what song, he couldn't remember what song. I bet it was I not a day goes by. not a day goes by. I bet it I was. I bet it was not, because it yeah. brings tears to my eyes. Yeah. Um, kind of like losing my mind in some ways. It, yep. I see it as kind of a companion piece. Yep. It captures that whole sense of, of, of loss, of grief that comes from loss, of uh, mm -hmm. the lack of being, the. the the, the, the losing control of the, your thought process because keep on the, the memories keep coming back unbidden, sometimes unwelcome, not a day goes by, not a blessed day, but you're still somehow a part of my life, etc. Not a day goes by Not a single But you're somewhere a part of my life 
It's actually a very bitter song. This is the song yes. that the divorced wife sings to her husband. Now, when we, uh, that's when we first hear it. We hear the divorce version of it. It's the reprise. Uh, later on in the night, earlier on in the, in the plot, we'll hear them sing this song to one another and it's their marriage vows. So they're singing, yeah. not a day goes by that I don't want you. It just keeps like, I can't believe this thing is happening. So what, be, what, what quote unquote begins as their marriage vows becomes the reprise and it's, and it's a very bitter song. Although Bernadette Peters, I think, has transformed it from a song about bitterness at the end of an acrimonious breakup into, as you say, a song about grief. And some of that's because Bernadette Peters started singing it in her cabaret acts well before this happened, and then she lost her husband. Yes. So now when Bernadette Peters sings Not a Day Goes By, uh, we, we talked about this in terms of follies, right? Losing my mind. It's impossible for me not to hear a little bit of her own story in this thing, yes. which is like, yeah. my husband died tragically way before his time and you know there's not a day goes by that i don't think about you you're and 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 actually in some ways like the the anger that can come with that kind of grief like why won't you let me go yes. and that's not the anger of when bernard peter sings it not the anger of a of a divorcee talking to her very much alive ex-husband it's it feels like the anger of a widow who is like we loved each other so intensely and like i i i don't know how to move forward yeah. um it's powerful there's nothing romantic about not a day goes by. It's actually not a day goes by, yep, <laughs> you yep. know, it's yeah. kind of a, a, an expression of frustration. Like, yeah. why can't I move on? But not a day goes by, not a blessed day. I often think blessed is a, uh, could could be another word that begins with F uh -huh. on the podcast. No, um, that's exactly right. I think it is kind of a stand-in for that word. Um, and yet, is. and yet, there's also you know like, and and I have to say, if you do, if you do go away, I'll die. I'll yeah. die day after day after day after day after day after day after day till the days day. go by, right? Till my death. So there is also this sense of like, yeah, I actually don't. <laughs> I don't want you to go away. This is yeah. the thing that is, I think this is the thing that is allowing me to live day after day. Although it's also a very honest look at how many days are left to me? How long do I endure this grief? Because there is a kind of nihilistic kind of emptiness to that, right? Yeah. There, yeah, there's something. So it's the other side of, I mean, what do we want to say? The other side of friendship, or maybe this is the cautionary tale. Don't put your eggs in the basket of, uh, of one, one primary relationship. Uh, because this is what you have to look forward to, which is unmitigated grief. I, it's it's a, oh boy, that's a sobering, chilling, beautiful yeah. moment. And vying, I think, for the 11 o'clock number and maybe a third one is our time. Yeah. As uh, uh, a candidate for the 11 o'clock number here. As you yeah. say. It's the finale, the, yeah. By the end of the second act, it just boom, boom, boom. These three great songs almost mm -hmm. in in order. But because the show's told backwards, you end up with sort of the most innocent last, as yep. opposed to what I think what the audience would expect is, you know, 
not a day goes by the curtain comes down the orchestra swells it goes on right. the cast comes out they bow we have our release the diva. Yep. yeah but but no you no. you end up on this positive note or mm-hmm. kind of more optimistic note but the audience is sitting there thinking but it isn't true and well, have a moment of cognitive dissonance. I think. Yes. And is it not true or is it the truest thing? I mean, yeah. I, so if structurally, right, if that's the finale of this thing, if that's the, you know, if that's what Sondheim as a creator, Hal Prince as a director, if that's what this material is trying to say, I, I mean, so look, look, look at these lines, right? Something is stirring, shifting ground. It's just begun. Edges are blurring all around and yesterday is done. So we're already at the end of the, yesterday is done, right? Like we are leaving something in the past. This is a song about moving forward, feel the flow, hear what's happening. And then they say to each other, we're what's happening. Don't you know, we're the movers and we're the, sh- we're the shapers, we're the names and tomorrow's papers. Up to us, man, to show them. Something is stirring, shifting ground. It's just begun. Edges are blurring all around, and yesterday is done. Feel the flow, hear what's happening, we're what's happening. Don't you know, we're the movers and we're the shapers. We're the names in tomorrow's papers, up to us man to show them. change and worlds to win our turn coming through me and you man me and you feel how it quivers on the brink what everything gives you the shivers makes you think There's so much stuff to sing And you and me will be singing it like the birds Me with music and you the words Tell them things they don't know Up to us pal to show them It's our time to change and worlds to win our turn we're what's new me and you pal me and you feel the flow flow. hear what's happening we're what's happening long ago all we had was that funny feeling saying someday we'd send them reeling now it looks like we can Someday just began It's our time, breathe it in. Worlds to change, worlds to win. Our turn coming through, me and you, man, me and you. They're on the brink of something. They're watching for Sputnik in the sky. They say later on, we'll right. put a plaque here. Like. There's, it's a, I'm, it's a, it's a moment of sacrament, I think, right? Like they're, the three of them are aware something is happening between the three of us. There is something. Yeah. Yeah. As you say, right. We've just seen what happens to that something, which is that it falls apart. And yet the show ends with the promise of that moment. So I don't know, like there's a piece that maybe I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm being a little, I don't know, wide-eyed and bushy-tailed, but there's a piece of me that thinks like, I don't know if there's something true about Merrily We Roll Along. It has to be, um, both of these things are true at the same time. Yes, yes. it is true that um, you can't make any, there's no guarantees, God don't answer prayers a lot. And that one brief shining moment, we haven't even talked about the function that the Kennedy, but it, some, some of this is generational, right? We, we see all these characters in 1981, the height of the Reagan administration, it, coming through the me era, right? All of the, I mean, they're just snorting cocaine all over the place. Yeah. And then we see them in 1955, right? right? Like at the at the brink of the end of the Eisenhower era, Sputnik's through the sky. They're, they're going to write a review about Bobby and Jackie and Jack. Um, and of course, as an audience, we know, right? There's there's nothing true about the innocence of that era. We, we know the other side of that innocence. And yet the feeling is real. 
And there is something so um, powerful in that sense that anything is possible. And then the curtain falls and we leave the theater. And we leave the theater. Yeah. And just to comment for a minute on Bobby and Jackie and Jack, I know you hate this song. I hate that song. I I know you hate this song, Uh, but it's a fascinating kind of encapsulation of uh, a moment in around 1961, maybe 62, prior to JFK's assassination, where there was, at least amongst white liberal America, and certainly within a mainstream of Canada, this notion that everything, you know, Jack Kennedy was in the White House. Everything was right with the world. There were intelligent, affluent, but ultimately kind people who were going to run the administration. It was all going to be better. And of course, there was the assassination on November 22nd, 1963. And then the kind of unfolding of horror after horror after horror uh, throughout, uh, throughout the subsequent years. But this 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 stupid little song kind of picks up that moment of romanticism, which interestingly, as you said just earlier, got dubbed in popular imagination as Camelot, um, the learner. Another musical. another great musical, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or not so great musical. Or but, not so great um, musical, yeah. There's Bobby and Jackie and Jack, and maybe it's more in the back. There's Ethel and Teddy and Pat alone, plus Eunice and Peter and Jean and Joe and what's his name? Stephen and hold the phone, the one in the army. One in the army? Captain Major. Sergeant. That's it. So many cards in the pack. You want to know how to keep track? Well, one is good looking and young and rich. Well, one is good looking and young and rich. The rest are good looking and young and rich. There isn't a lot that they lack. Not Bobby and Jackie and Jack and Ethel and Ted and Eunice and Pat and Joan and Steve and Peter and Jean and Sarge. There's probably dozens of others at large. God knows. And Joe and Rose. We're bringing back style to the White House. I'm painting it cream for a start. We're making it into a cultural lighthouse for glamour and beauty and art. Evenings of the Budapest playing Vivaldi and Munch doing bits of Ravel. I'll get Leontine Price to sing a medley from Meister Singer and Margot Fontaine to dance Giselle. Together? Won't it be perfectly swell? But yeah, to your other point, Nathan, about ending with a hopeful, optimistic kind of message, aware of all the all the awful, horrible things that can happen. I mean, storytelling backwards shouldn't come as a surprise to Christians, because basically everything we know in the New Testament is a story told backwards. The Gospels weren't written and the Gospels were only written by people who had an experience of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Paul's theology comes from a change in his own life, presumably, uh, in whatever way that happened, whether it was a blinding uh, light on the road to Damascus or something a little less dramatic, more likely in my view. But it's uh, particularly the, the Gospels tell the story of, of Jesus, of Nazareth from the point of view of knowing the end. And yet we have to engage in the story as we read the gospels and tell them as if we don't know the end and the end, which is good news. It's, it's the resurrection is obviously, uh, you know, a triumph of God, but it is not without uh, including the pain. Right. Easter Day and yes. Good Friday always belong together. Yeah, they're, they're, they're two sides of the same coin. But I mean, when you think about the lines of, of that last song, something is stirring, breaking. I mean, like that could be the song of the tomb on Easter morning, yeah. right? Like, oh, so, yeah. so there, I mean, I, I get here again, right? Yeah, I think Merrily We Roll Along is almost liturgical or almost sacramental in its way of thinking about time, which is, uh, and, and actually, in some ways, I'm thinking about our earlier conversation with Rabbi Kahana and Cantor Ida Ray Kahana, right? Like this is this is a little bit of a Jewish ending, right? Which is like, yes. what happens when what happens when the Cossacks destroy your town? What happens when your world is leveled? What happens when you pick up your family and immigrate to a new country and start from scratch and everything has ended? 
you you turn back to Genesis and you start telling your story again. Yeah. So that's yeah. what the show that's what the show is doing, right? Like yeah. Frank Frank Shepard's life has completely fallen apart. Fallen apart. He's lost everything. He's probably ready to you know at the end, at the beginning of the musical. I think we meet him as he's he's kind of ready to off himself, right? Yeah. And if there's if there's a I don't know if there's a liturgical trajectory, it's like you turn back to the beginning and you start over. That's actually resurrection, right? Yeah. Which is not a denial of anything that's happening, exactly. but a, it's a sanctification of everything that has happened. The resurrected body returns with the scars in his hands. And the wounds. Um, and the wounds are there. And yet yeah. that doesn't rob that moment of newness, rawness, uncomfortable. Something is stirring, breaking ground. It's just begun. Yes, that is every ending is a beginning. Um, yeah. that's, that's what it means to live in Cairo's time. That's what it means to live in God's time, which is there's no such thing as happily ever after. And there's also no such thing as a death that is final. There is always then a new beginning out of that, out of that ending. Um, yeah. I think that is, that is the gospel. And I think ways, that's the gospel. Yeah, yeah. Merrily, Merrily does that in some ways more beautifully than just about any other Sondheim show I can think of. Yeah. Yet I'm, I'm, I'm perplexed with its lack of, you know, uh, lack of success and yeah. um, well I mean to the to the Kahana's point right like American audiences have been trained by Christianity a, a false right. version of Christianity to expect a clear beginning middle and an end we want yeah. a you know like we want a satisfying ending that we can feel good about we can applaud even if it's you know even if it's a heartbreaking end even not a day goes by and then you know like the curtain goes down and we weep but then we applaud because we've been moved to catharsis and then we right. go into our lives and you know like we go out to dinner and have a drink We've been trained to need a kind of a little button at the end of the thing. And Merrily We Roll Along does not give us, or if it does, it gives us the button of the beginning, which as you say, that's a really complicated button. It's a really complicated, um, and for consciousness to kind of absorb that and figure yeah. it out and then go out and have a nice dinner Apparently yeah, it, didn't work in 1981 did not work. or in and, 1984. And, and still, you know, doesn't quite, I think, you know, it's been tinkered with. I, you know, I think in some ways, like, as with other Sondheim shows, Merrily was a little ahead of its time. I think the score, you know, it's, there's been some tinkering. James Lapine famously kind of have, has come into it and done some reshaping of it. So, I mean, we'll see, right? It's, it is in some ways, I think it is the Sondheim show of this moment. Richard Linkletter is working on a film version of it that I don't think we're going to see for another 20 years because he's doing his you know, his thing where he actually right. literally, so it's, uh, it's Beanie Feldstein and Ben Platt, and I forget oh, who, wow. who's playing friend, but you know, so we're gonna actually get to see these, young, now they're in, you know, what are they, the kind of early thirties, I think. They're doing yeah. the early stuff now. And over the next 20 years, they will gradually film this whole story. And wow. in 20 years or 30 years, we're gonna get to see Merrily Roll Along in Richard Linkletter's version. So in some ways, like, this is a story that I think is just like, now we have a sense of what, of how to appreciate this kind of material in a way that I think audiences, in 1981, faced with a, you know, a company of 18 year old kids in sweatshirts. We're like, what, what the hell is this? <laughs> What's what are you guys going doing? on? Um, yeah. And Sondheim, but I'm in Yeah, that was a, that was the, the worst possible idea. It was so, you know, so innovative. We're so glad we did it. And also a complete failure. But there is something so, I mean, I maybe this is just the theme of really roll on. There's, there's, there is this little seed of promise in this yeah. material. Something is stirring, breaking ground. It's just begun. And I want to see where that, where this show can go in the next 20 or 30 years. I think it's, I think there's something really powerful here. It's fascinating how even the critical failures of Sondheim can provoke such amazing conversation and, yeah. uh, and, and reflection and insight. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. to Frank Rich's point that you began the episode with, right? To be a fan of Stephen Sondheim is to have your heart broken. And yeah. yet the failures are in some ways the most interesting stuff there is. It's not the successes. Uh, it's your failures that define you. That's, I mean, gosh, that's kind of a gospel message in some ways, I think, too. Uh, this guy knew that. Your failures define you. Um, so fail big and fail spectacularly because <laughs> that's what people are going to remember. With that, With until that. next time. <laughs> See you next time. The Gospel of Musical Theater is a production of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. Join Peter and Nathan every other Friday right here in your podcast feed and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Gospel of MT. Learn more and support us at trinity-episcopal.org slash podcasts. See you next time.